Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Science Fiction. I'm Rob Wolf, and this is the You're Never Too Old episode. On today's show, I'm talking with an author about their second novel, which is a sequel to a book that was written but never published, set in a real town where fictional characters become non-fictional and nice ones become deadly, and where adults must return to what they knew as kids to save the world. And if you're confused, it's entirely my fault because Swashbucklers by Dan Hanks is a wonderful, fun novel that makes perfect sense as you speed through every adventure-filled page. Dan is also the author of Captain Moxley and the Embers of the Empire, and I'm thrilled to have the forever young at heart author with me now via Skype from his home in the Peak District of England. Hello, Mr. Hanks, and welcome to New Books in Science Fiction. Hi, Rob. Thank you very much for that lovely introduction, and thank you for having me. Was that lovely, or did I completely mangle the description <laughs> of your book? No, I think that's, that covers it. The beautiful thing about this book is that it is a lot of different things, some of which I'm still coming to terms with myself. It's a bit of a kitchen sink and everything else of a book, to be honest, which is not how it started out. It was just supposed to be kind of a straightforward ghostbuster adventure, and then it, it took a few left turns along the way. Excellent. Well, I appreciate that as someone who reads lots of books and likes to talk about them because it gives us lots of stuff to talk about. It certainly does, yeah. I'm really excited to have you on the show for multiple reasons, Dan. One is, as you know, you're going to be joining me as a kind of co-host on the show, and you're going to be interviewing authors in the future. So this is your entry to the show as a as an author starting as an author and then you in future episodes will switch roles and get to interview other authors this is my test run so if you hear me scribbling um i'm taking notes yes yes you have to do everything exactly as i do (laughs) that will be really boring for our listeners now you're bringing your own panache to the hosting gig 
I will see if I can find my panache and then I will bring it to the hosting gig. You have to wear it so everyone can see it, but fortunately it's not a visual a visual medium, so your panache will go unseen, but it will be heard. That makes no sense, but um, <laughs> we will now move on to talking about swashbucklers. So maybe you could set it up. It opens with your main protagonist. There, there are really four kind of main protagonists, but there's a main, main one, Cisco Collins, who is a divorced single parent, single now after his divorce, returning to the town he grew up in with his eight-year-old son, George. So maybe you could explain why he's come back. It's one of these moments in a person's life where they, I mean, I don't know if we've all had this, but quite often you have a place where you grow up. And I certainly had a place where I grew up and then left, couldn't wait to leave. And then at some point, you know, a few years later, you end up coming back. And in Cisco's situation, he's he sort of left after a an event in his childhood, which is kind of like, it's just, the whole book is, the, the whole premise of this book is if, you know, what if these kids had this amazing 1980s style Goonies adventure, and then this is now 30 something years later, they are middle-aged, they have kids, and this kid, when everything went wrong at the end of this adventure, he sort of scarpered from town and he's he hasn't really been back to see his friends in all this time. And now life is is sort of kicking him and he's sort of retreated back to this town, so we think, to sort of squirrel himself away for the winter and lick his wounds and reconnect with the friends who were always there for him. But actually he has an ulterior motive because he knows this evil that they once vanquished as kids could be on its way back. Right, so he's kind of got double motives. One is seeking comfort and one is to save the world. Although he doesn't quite remember. He's not sure if he saved the world, but he has a strange feeling that maybe he did. Yeah, I mean there's there's lots of his memories that are a bit fuzzy as they are with all of us when we get to, you know, 40 whatever. But the funny thing about this is not only is he seeking comfort in his friends and his, you know, his sort of found family, but also he is seeking comfort in the idea of returning to being someone who saved the world once upon a time and could do it again. So as scared as he is, he's also kind of a little bit excited to roll about and the nostalgic feeling of being a, a hero again. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, the book is a kind of window into parenthood. And I have to say, it's not necessarily the most flattering window because Cisco, <laughs> as you've described, is sort of yearning for something that parenthood or even just adulthood he feels has robbed him of it's as if parenthood is sort of an illusion breaker whereas childhood for cisco and for everyone hopefully if they had a half decent childhood you know there was more freedom and less responsibility and a freedom to imagine too so yeah. it seems like adulthood has robbed cisco of all that I actually wrote down a, a line here that i thought captured that I, I i don't remember i guess this is what he was thinking cisco was thinking there was a reason they hadn't made the ghostbusters parents in the films it just wouldn't have worked you couldn't properly parent and do your taxes and try to pay the bills and save the world at the same time. <laughs> well, it was, it, I mean, that was kind of, the idea originally started as, as wanting to do a Ghostbusters thing, but then this book became about how would the Ghostbusters do their jobs as parents? I, I mean, I have struggled with parenting, both in a marriage and now outside of it. And it's tricky and hard and wonderful and challenging 
and all-encompassing. And you see so many people do it seemingly well on Facebook, which I'm sure we all know the, the lies of Facebook photographs and, and all that. But it is tricky. And how, I mean, I've struggled to balance parenting and, and working, to be quite honest. But if my work involved trying to save the world from something, how would that work? You know, how would the Ghostbusters have, have dealt with fighting ghosts while also trying to find babysitters and go to nativity plays and things like that what if the goonies had all grown up and they had their own kids and they were trying to work but their kids were off on an adventure and how would they cope with that when they have to fight one-eyed willy again <laughs> you know it's that kind of that kind of thinking behind this book and there's a lot about nostalgia i wanted to say because when you hit adulthood and and you don't necessarily hit it all in one go. It seems to be a long process of being hit by adulthood. And you sort of, you reflect on those happier, more free times, if you're lucky enough to have had them when you were a kid. And yeah, I mean, I, I've just been doing a lot of reflection about my life, my childhood, how things used to be, how things are now, sort of trying to balance all that up in my mind. And, and the result is this book, <laughs> which is an exploration of, it could be a, a midlife crisis. It could be the end of the world, you know, or in between the two. My mind wandered off when I was reading the book about different experiences of childhood. And it made me reflect on how I'm no expert on the history of childhood, but I know there have been times and in parts of the world and history where children have been working from day one, you know, and the level of maybe their opportunity to imagine or go on adventures was more constrained. Mm. And so I, I wondered if they then didn't have to go through this disillusioning maturation where you sort of realize Santa Claus isn't real because you never thought he was because you were always in the factory doing some horrible labor no child should ever have to do. But yeah. You know, we ply our kids with, with fantasies and stories, and we want them to have this protected childhood, but it's only to shatter it later when they grow up, and then they, 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 then they miss it. Well, I mean, that's, that's a really interesting way of looking at it. And this comes at a time when my own kids, one of whom has recently discovered Santa isn't real, and one who still kind of believes, and trying to juggle that. And as much as I give nostalgia a bit of a pummeling in this book, I, I love it. I unashamedly love it and I am a big advocate for giving kids as much of that magic in their childhoods as possible even if it is diluted later as it undoubtedly will be I mean I still hold on to the magic of Christmas and you've kind of shattered my illusions about Father Christmas being real so thanks for that Rob oh I'm so um, sorry that was a spoiler <laughs> I should have put a spoiler in front of it for other people you're gonna have to put that at the head of the show but yeah no I'm I think you have a point I think it's interesting to think about that whether it's the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do but i don't regret having that magic as a kid and i don't i regret the fact it's gone a little bit the older you get the more reality sort of kicks you but i don't i don't regret it at all so i'm very glad to have had it and i'm trying my best to give it to my own kids which is more difficult in the age of youtube and tiktok and all kinds of things that we never had to deal with as kids I think being a writer for myself, I feel like I'm glad I had a childhood filled with imagination because I feel like it's a there's a reservoir in me that I still draw on. Yeah. So I'm not really advocating for not allowing children free roam of their imagination. I, I'm maybe a little more agnostic about telling them the tooth fairy's real or not, although I did that with my son until he very quickly figured out that it was his parents putting the money <laughs> under his pillow.
your book really kind of captures this kind of mix of childhood innocence and adventure and like a dark kind of grim comedy too when the evil spirit takes over the because it happens during between Halloween and Christmas the the story takes over the some of the Christmas ornaments and embodies them with an evil force. Yeah. Uh, I think one of the first things that happen is that a huge inflatable Santa starts marching through a Christmas market and stomps on a number of people and yeah. buildings. And, and so then Cisco's son, George, gets all excited and he goes, he's real, he's real. And, and there's a line, George shouted excitedly as they ran for their lives. So it was like the kid's totally happy. He's he's missing the part where there's bodies being crushed. Yeah, well, that was, um, I mean, that's an interesting thing because I remember I watched Raiders of the Lost Ark when I was maybe seven, which to me growing up didn't seem like a big deal at all. And I absolutely loved Indiana Jones. I became an archaeologist on the basis of my love for Indiana Jones. And despite the fact it's horrific in parts, it didn't bother me at all, didn't have nightmares. It was great. I, I still haven't shown my kids who were 10 and 11 because I just, I, I mean, I now have those adult sensibilities of thinking that's way too old for you. But I think when, when you're a kid, you sometimes miss the horror. And I don't know whether it's you miss the horror at the time or you, when you're looking back you don't remember it as, as much. So it was kind of interesting to have George see Father Christmas come to life. And even though Father Christmas is actively killing people on a rampage through Manchester, all George really cares about is the fact that Father Christmas come to life and he's moving about and he's real. So I thought that was kind of fun to play with. Well, your whole book is sort of a twist on maybe the parents have it wrong, the kids have it right. George is looking at it through rose-colored glasses, but there are forces that we we don't see. I mean, as your book evolves, there are things we don't see and that the adults have chosen to forget or through some magic. It's not really clear why they've forgotten, just repressed memory syndrome or the trauma of the horror of what they've been through, I suppose. But the truth is the button-down adults who are trying to lead sensible lives and pay the bills are missing the underlying reality of the universe you've presented, which has multiple layers in other universes and magical creatures climbing through portals. Yeah, I don't think I went too far into the explanation behind the memory loss of the the three friends who stayed behind, but I, I sort of always imagined it to be the fact that they stayed in the town, and so they are closest to events and in order to sort of stay there and live there and grow up with the people who also experienced what was perceived to be a gas leak where everyone imagined monsters coming to life and killing people and in order for them to be able to stay in that town they had to sort of repress those memories and and go along with the line it was a gas leak and believe what they had been told by the authorities whereas Cisco left the town and I think he was able to more easily hold on to the memories of what actually happened, although he doesn't retain all his memories because, you know, you get older and you forget stuff. So the book is set in a place called Dark Peak, and I actually thought that was a made-up name. You know, I thought it was like, oh, Twin Peaks meets Dark (laughs) Shadows or something, but I guess it's a real place. It is. So maybe you could just tell me a little bit about the reality and how you drew on or or inspired by where you live now to create a setting for the story. Yeah, well, I I live on the outskirts of a little town called Glossop in the Peak District in England, which is a, the town is a little bit to the 
east of Manchester. It's a beautiful town in a beautiful setting. It's known as the gateway to the Dark Peak. So the Peak District is split into a couple of different peaks. One is White Peak, one is Dark Peak. There could be another one that I can't remember right now. And I think it's to do with the geology or the sort of the landscape. So the Dark Peak is kind of a darker heather on the moors i guess i mean i didn't go into my research beyond that i thought it was a cool name and i thought instead of making it officially set in glossop i thought i'd just change the name because it sounded pretty cool but it was really i really wanted to use glossop because it's such a lovely little town and there are lots of i wanted to use my local bookstore the local cafe that is a big favorite of mine i got everyone's permission before i threw them into the book um (laughs) which was good I, I kind of enjoyed the idea of writing a Ghostbusters style adventure in England for starters, but also in my hometown in the north of England. I mean, we had Attack the Block set in London, which was aliens invading uh, a London sort of council estate, which was awesome. But what have we had set in the north of England, aside from maybe, you know, vets in their little cars going to stick their hands up cows' bottoms in the fields? Uh, you know (laughs) well maybe maybe those shows didn't come over to america (laughs) but we had quite a few of those and it's it's such a beautiful part of the world and i kind of wanted to trash it a bit with some supernatural crap and i did i saw attack the block and i i thought it was great i was in london actually with my son and it was the only time because i feel like in these states they don't check people's ages and he was maybe 15 or something and it was rated such that he was maybe you're supposed to be 16 or something and i was so indignant that he couldn't go in and see it so we ended up seeing it here in the states when it was here briefly oh they i mean maybe in london but they're not too fussy with when it comes to ages over here and everything's a pg-13 now or or 12a or something so you can basically take your kids to see pretty much anything <laughs> uh, well it was it was london yeah but i just remember being very feeling very <laughs> indignant that i could just dis- it's my son i can decide what he can see he's mature enough i know well i mean so many of us at 12 and 13 snuck into 15s over here that yeah i'm not surprised you were indignant you had every right to be i'm sorry Thank you. I accept your apology. Uh, (laughs) It's interesting, though, because your book has been compared, I've seen, you know, to Stranger Things and, of course, Ghostbusters and Goonies. And those are all American shows. So it is kind of your England's answer. I have a big thing for 1980s America and that sort of idealistic life, which obviously wasn't necessarily the case. And it was a very Hollywood skewed reality. But we, you know, all of us over here grew up on that. And it was, for me, it was, I kind of have a a yearning for that kind of atmosphere and that tone and that sort of adventure feel that you had over there. But I thought, and I did initially think I'll start writing it set in America. So this was the first book that was the kids having the adventure in the first place. That was the one that started this whole thing off. And that book didn't sell and that's, but I couldn't leave the characters alone. So I wanted to write them as adults and make it the first book and then you you never see the first adventure you only hear about it but initially when i started writing i wanted to set it in america because i thought that's that made sense because that's where all those adventures had happened and then i thought that's just not going to be authentic i love america i've been a few times in different places but i don't know enough to to write it authentically and i just thought screw it i'm going to try and, and and make a british version which comes with its own quirks I guess, which hopefully makes it a bit more fresh and and exciting for 
for readers who know those movies but maybe haven't seen or read anything quite like this. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off i'm jewish so i'm not i mean i'm immersed in christmas over here but you mentioned christmas scarecrows coming to life and i was yeah, like did uh, i miss that are there is that something i've just not noticed here in the states that we have uh, christmas scarecrows that, that's entirely my invention but we do have so out here in the countryside at random times of the year it feels like i'm sure there's a there's a reason for it but I will be driving through a village and then there will be a shitload of scarecrows like hung from people's fences and lampposts and I mean, side of buildings. And it is I'm sure that there has to be a valid reason for it. I don't know if it's like well dressing events or festivals or anything like that, but they will just appear as if from nowhere. <laughs> and I just thought. I needed something for this particular part of the book. And I just thought, what if we had this really weird tradition where we had scarecrows at Christmas? And I guess half of me was thinking, what if people read this and actually make it a thing? Because that'd be kind of funny. But no, we have scarecrows at various parts of the year around here, which do freak me out. And the kids love them. But as yet, we don't have any Christmas scarecrows. So that's just that's that's I invented that. But if anyone wants to start it, please, please go for it. See, I thought I thought I was learning something regional about a regional custom or something. I mean, if there is, I'd be happy to learn about it. There is this backstory that is referenced, and it's as if, oh, did I miss the first book or something? There is that feeling. You don't need to have read it to understand, but it's almost like, oh, they went on this adventure. I want to read about this adventure. So, and then I did see also in a Q and A somewhere you described what I thought of as your first book, Captain Moxley and the Embers of the Empire, as your third book and so then I was like completely because this feels like a second book and your first book was your third book so maybe you could unravel those numbers and books mystery of my roots publishing yes um I spent a very long time writing uh, an epic fantasy which was the very first book I ever wrote and I sort of worked on it for about 10 years because I'm an idiot <laughs> but as with all all new writers so we sort of hold on to that first book and we think this is this is the one I'm not going to I'm going to carry on until it sells and and you can't necessarily do that and I definitely shouldn't have but I kept working on it for 10 years and then I went off and did other things and I wrote screenplays and tried my hand at and screenwriting which I really love and one of those screenplays turned out to be the sort of genesis of Captain Moxley but the second book I actually wrote was a book called Panic Stations, which was the adventure the kids of Swashbucklers have. And it was it's a fun, it was a straight-laced adventure in which there was no folklore elements to it. 
uh, certainly not as much as in it appears in Swashbucklers. It was very Goonies with an element of the supernatural about it as well. And that sold, but then there was, you know, it, it didn't eventuate, unfortunately. And I got that news just before Christmas a couple of years ago. And I was sitting there thinking, I don't really want to have to write a book from scratch. So I thought I'll adapt this screenplay that I had, um, which was Captain Moxley. And I thought, you know, I've got the structure in place. I've got the dialogue. I've got characters. I know what happens. So I just, I, I adapted that in about six months, which was a really interesting process. And it's way more fun to write a book when you know what's going to happen. <laughs> Or at least, I mean, no, not not necessarily, but there were certain things. I knew the structure of it, which was great. I knew the characters and that, that I could then play about with it and expand it and flesh it out a lot more into book form, which was a lot of fun. So Captain Moxley was actually the third book I wrote and the second book I sold, but the first to get published. Brilliant, <laughs> brilliant. Well, I see a theme with the two books you have published that you'd spent a lot of time working on a related project before it emerged. So in the case of Captain Moxley, it was a screenplay. And in the case of Swashbucklers, it was the prequel, which I suppose could end up being a sequel. So your sequel could be a prequel and your third book could be your second book, could be your, I don't know. It's someone mentioned the other day that it could be a sprequel, which I, I quite like. So I'm going to, I'm going to run with that. I'd love to write another one. I'd also love to write another Captain Moxley because there's definitely more stories to tell. So what happens next? I don't know, but yeah, swashbucklers, I would love. And I, at some point I will tell the next part of the story, which could involve seeing more from that first adventure, which would be fun. I'm sure it helped having this book already written, the earlier book, so you could draw on that and you sort of had characters in mind, although you had to mature them into adults. But yeah. do you think it was necessary to write Swashbucklers? I couldn't let the characters go because I, you know, when that first book didn't sell and I thought, well, it's probably not going to sell now. You know, I'm not going to be able to find it another home. And I really love the characters and I love the idea and the villain. And I was just they just kept coming back to me and I was like, well, do I rewrite it? And we try and sell it again. And that seemed to be silly. And I just thought, what about if, you know, what if we had this sort of, they were talking about Goonies too at the time, I think. And the idea about the Goonies being in that town, being parents, their kids go off on an adventure and then the parents have to follow them. And I thought, what if I did something like that? You know, I take these characters and they are now adults, more mature. They have their own kids, but they still have to they have to then fight the evil again after so long. And I'm a big fan of it. So there is an element of that in there, although it sort of flits back and forth between the kids and the adults. Um, and I don't think I don't remember the adults being parents. So that was really something I wanted to to focus on. So I didn't the book didn't need to be written, but I needed to write the book, if that makes sense, because I wanted to tell a story with these characters and also give myself the opportunity to potentially reconfigure the first book into something else later. And so it wouldn't wouldn't have gone to waste. So hopefully, touch wood, I'll I'll get to do that at some point. Without ruining or, or spoiling anything, you've set the book up nicely to launch into the past, I think. But let readers read to figure out how you did that. Hopefully it's going to be it's going to be interesting to take that the essence of the first book and make it a, 
and and utilize it for a sequel if that makes sense that probably doesn't make any sense to anyone but read the book and then it will make sense maybe exactly <laughs> yeah, maybe it's always a maybe the book is very much fantastical in many ways it's rooted in the experience of parenthood though and then there are references to our modern world and i thought it was there're not a lot of them but i thought it was interesting how you reference the insanity of of the last few years whether it's you know you mentioned brexit you mention the election of our former counterfactual president shall we say <laughs> And you mention uh, the pandemic and you, you talk about some countries throwing science and logic out the window when it comes to the pandemic. So so yeah. we sort of live in a time where there is this sense that reality can't people can deny reality with impunity. And so out of that comes all this chaos in this town where scarecrows come to life and start attacking people and gigantic inflatable Santas start killing people. It's as if the community is already immune to to this like they don't believe what they see or they just choose to forget it and it just sort of you've kind of matched it seamlessly with the with the world as if we're, we're set up for that now and i thought that was an interesting small detail it's not a major part of the book but it kind of sets up a certain context yeah the i mean i just like to state for the record i did not start the pandemic i'm not responsible for brexit or for the counterfactual president, which I think is probably the nicest thing he's ever been called. <laughs> um, however, as I was writing, and this I think came through the edits, I brought it out through the edits more, everything it matched up with what was happening in the book. And it seemed like a really nice coincidence that what was happening in the book, you know, there were lots of crazy or ridiculous things happening and people were just sort of overwhelmed by the ridiculous and sort of just got on with everyday life and that's very much how I see the last five years not everyone agrees with my political stances my mum did tell me the other day she stopped reading the book at the Brexit bit <laughs> she won't go on and carry on reading it but we have you know we have disagreements within families in this country and we're all very nice people but we see things in different ways and i see this in one particular way and i think a lot of what this country has been through in the past few years has been ridiculous and and yet people are still trying to carry on with their lives and i saw that a lot in america with trump and, and obviously america being america the rest of us sort of were still immersed in in what was happening quite quite directly you know it, every day it was logging onto twitter and seeing what what was happening that day and yet we're still going to work we're still taking our kids to school we're still paying the bills we're still trying to get on with things while this other ridiculous ridiculous stuff is happening in the background and it was it was fun in a not so fun way if that makes sense to sort of match that with what's happening in the book so these are monsters there's there's monsters there's things happening giant santas trashing manchester and yet people still get up the next day and go to work and say, did you hear about that? Yeah, it's, you know, silly. And and we all sort of get on with it. And we, we are, like you say, almost immune to it, given everything else that's happening. And that was kind of interesting to play with in the, in the book. Like you say, it wasn't a big part. And it was something that came out through the edits while we were in, sitting in the middle of the pandemic. And the pandemic, I mean, mentioning that, it was it was kind of, do I mention it or do I not? But it was contemporary. So I kind of felt like I had to. And 
I think at the time the numbers were easing and it was a case of thinking, where will we be at Christmas? Will the numbers have eased? You know, will we have been vaccinated enough? Will we be able to have the Christmas markets where the giant Santa appears? So the book is set, you know, maybe a couple of weeks ago now. And it actually, it turned out to be kind of accurate. People were still getting out, but masking up and, and everyone's sort of thinking in crowded places. You know about that. We have that unease now about being in crowded places with other people and people coughing and, and whatnot. So there are a couple of little pandemic things. I didn't, I try not to go too heavy with it because it's, you know, we've all lived through it. Nobody wants to sort of relive it in, a, in an escapist book, but it was certainly, I think it was worth acknowledging at least. Yeah. I don't see how any book going forward wouldn't include some reference to it in a way it feels like, and it's not, I mean, probably going to live with some form of it. For a while, yeah. For a while, yeah, for sure. Why don't we just talk a little bit about what you have planned as a host? Because I think you're going <laughs> to do the next episode. So I am. What's your vision? My vision, my vision is to get my head around the fact that I have to take over <laughs> and then do this in a way that does not is not see followers drop off from your wonderfulness, Rob. So I have got a book called Deep Dive lined up i'm almost finished reading it and the author ron walters has agreed to had to do a little chat with me so i'm going to finish the book i'm going to come up with a series of questions and then i'm looking forward to just sitting down with him and just and talking about this marvelous book which again it's kind of interesting because it it does feature a father who has kids and the the parenting angle is quite a heavy aspect of this science fiction virtual reality book it's also a really fast-paced adventure and it's fantastic so um it's going to be a lot of fun to talk to him and and uh become a host <laughs> and see see how that feels on the other side of the microphone uh you're going to be amazing i can tell because you're such a wonderful guest and and uh, such a knowledgeable and experienced writer so you'll know exactly you're too kind you'll know how to crack those writers open you'll just go right to the heart <laughs> of, the, of the issue or i'll probably let them get off really easily <laughs> You won't. You won't. You Brits, you know, you have a very suave exterior, but then you, you know, you know how to stealth attack. <laughs> You'll do it quite subtly. They won't know it. You've, you've ripped them open. Like a British hosting ninja. Exactly. So I'll do my best. Dan, the Ninja Hanks. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Really enjoyable. Thank you, Rob. I can't wait to tune in when you are at the helm. I have been talking to Dan Hanks about his new novel, Swashbucklers, which came out from Angry Robot in November. Thank you for sharing your time with us today, everyone who's been listening. We couldn't do the show without you, dear listeners. Please subscribe to the show if you don't already, and consider leaving a positive review. That would be just lovely. Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com composed the theme music. Music. I'm Rob Wolf, and I edited this episode, or I certainly will edit it. I haven't yet, of course, because I'm speaking on it right now. Marshall Poe is the editor and founder of the New Books Network, and Leanne Wilson is the network's co-editor. Be well and keep reading. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.